Hi, I'm Lorna Meehan, and welcome to Rebel Heroines, a podcast celebrating the rebel heroines of the Greek myths through original audio drama, poetry, book and theatre reviews, and interviews with fellow fans and creatives. In this podcast, the stereotypical and somewhat toxic heroes of the ancient world take a step back as we delve into the stories of the women who shaped their destinies. If you like your Greek myths seen through a feminist lens, enjoy creative adaptations of the classics such as the novels of Natalie Haynes and Madeline Miller, and agree that Hollywood hasn't made a decent movie set in antiquity since the original Clash of the Titans, this is the podcast for you. celebrating the women of Greek mythology and the women who write about them. In this podcast, the stereotypical toxic heroes of the ancient world take a step back as we delve into the stories of the women who shaped their destinies. I'm loving the guys and the gods too. I think I'd have a great night out on the Raz with the Hermes, shape-shifting, stealing shit, getting away with it, chasing cows around. But This show's all about the ladies, and we've got a lot of them this month, including an interview with the directors of Nine Muses Theatre, bringing their original musical Woven to this year's Edinburgh Fringe. Exciting! Just want to big up another original antiquity-based musical coming up on Audible, Virgil. It's got Will Young playing the author of the Aeneid and sounds like it's going to be jolly good fun. Book-wise, I've just started reading Psyche and Eros by Luna McNamara and so far it's been wonderfully unexpected. I'll be featuring it in a future Psyche episode because she has got a lot of rebel heroine goodness going on. So this month, we're getting up close and personal with Hera, Athena and Aphrodite. Let's get down to the gist of it with a nifty little poem from Sarah L. Dixon. Sarah L. Dixon, A Golden Apple It rolled into the party, shining, golden, disruptive, more like a grenade than any would guess. Challenge three to prove their beauty, and Paris to choose when all he wanted was to tend his flock and avoid the orchard. So as much as Paris, in my opinion, is a coward, a prancing fop, a vapid little pretty boy who's in love with himself, he didn't really stand much of a chance when these three rocked up and said, Hey you, farmer boy, decide who's the hottest out of us three and don't worry the other two won't be angry honest we're only badass goddesses who could fuck your whole life up no pressure where did this golden apple come from it came from eris goddess of strife she didn't get invited to the wedding of the century obviously the greek pantheon hadn't been reading their fairy stories never snub the evil sorceress types it ain't gonna end well 
There's also Gaia struggling under the strain of too many mortals. And Zeus decides, what we need is a good war. He's very smart. You can see why he's in charge. How do you start a big war? You get the gods in a tears. They start messing around. The mortals get in a tears. They get their spears out. What's the biggest tears you can get the gods in? Well, proof that these myths were in the hands of men, it's decided the best way to cause a storm is to get three proud and jealous goddesses competing with each other. Over what? Who's the most intelligent? Who's the fastest in the egg and spoon race? No, of course not. Written on the golden apple is to the fairest. And naturally, it all ends in the bloodbath that we know as the Trojan War, which all of the immortals saunter away from relatively unscathed. But what an epic we get in between. So Paris must choose. He tries to do that thing where he goes, Oh, I think you're all fabulous, ladies. Wink. But that ain't gonna wash. Someone's got to win. What do each of these goddesses offer him? And this is my through line for this episode because what they offer him is a great insight into the personalities of these goddesses. First up, the Queen of Heaven herself, Hera. Hera is the daughter of Kronos and Rhea. She's Zeus's sister. He got through quite a few wives until he got to her. Some of them we met in the Titanesses episode. Hera is goddess of marriage and she knows plenty about marriage because what a marriage she is in. I'd like to be a fly on the wall in Zeus and Hera's marriage counselling sessions. That could be an audio drama in itself. Make it happen, Rebel Heroines fans. Send it to me. I'll exclusive premiere it. Netflix will snap it up. It'll be great. Just a little side note. Did you know Netflix have made a series about the Greek gods set in the modern day with, get this, Jeff Goldblum as Zeus. How cool is that? It's called Chaos with a K. I'll let you know more as I know. All I know so far is that it all kicks off when Zeus finds a grey hair. Dun, dun, dun. Linking us back to Hera's toxic marriage. I understand him. He cannot resist fresh adoration, needs attention. I know he is weak and his weakness makes me tender and it makes me so angry I can barely see. That's Nina McLaughlin's take on Hera's marriage in the awesome Wake Siren, this toxic love-hate relationship of two egoists who are very well matched. She also has her saying, there's no one on my team, which, though no excuse for the behaviour Hera's known for, nevertheless makes sense for her and humanises her a little. It's lonely being queen. She offers Paris the thing she loves most, it seems, power, rule over the whole of Asia. And I think it's safe to say Hera's love of power is only matched by her intense passion for her husband, for better or worse. She is the perfect candidate to be his queen. She has gravitas. She's full of pride. She don't take any shit from anyone except Zeus. She commands respect 
I imagine Hera to be a bit like Elizabeth I. She can run rings around men. She can keep them in check through fear alone. Like Liz, she's paranoid and has a temper. Like Liz, she keeps herself on top by keeping other women down. And despite her admirable qualities of queenship, she is hard to like. She's an upholder of patriarchy because she punishes the women her husband rapes. All that fiery matriarch energy goes into torturing mortal women for daring to disrespect her as if they had a choice. Why does she put up with her husband's constant infidelities? It's not enough to say it's because she loves him or that she wants to stay on top and will suffer no rival. I wouldn't even say it's because she's scared of Zeus because she's ballsy enough to attempt to overthrow him at one point. Ultimately, it must be because she enjoys the thrill, the meddling, the kick of revenge, the addiction of power, the sense of control in an otherwise unequal partnership that she's essentially stuck in because she's the goddess of marriage. And on the one hand, why the hell shouldn't she make her fury known? She's the queen of heaven. It's just unfortunate that she throws her slighted ego, her passionate rage in the wrong direction, making women stay in labour longer than they should, hounding them with insect bites after Zeus has turned them into cows. And with Semele, mother of you-know-who, Dionysus, every episode peeps, every episode, she makes it so that Zeus has to obliterate her. And that's proof that Dionysus was destined to shake things up for the Pantheon. She doesn't stop at the women either. She sends snakes to kill the infant Hercules. She sends him mad so he kills his own wife and children. She leaves a lot of horrible consequences in her wake. She doesn't give a shit. You kind of have to admire her sheer disregard of others. Yet... I think there are more to her than the Harridan wife. She's clearly resourceful, clever, scheming. This is played out in the personality of her son who she rejects, Hephaestus, the lame god of the forge, who she throws down from Olympus in disgust. Yet Hephaestus, through his craft, makes himself indispensable to the Olympians. In the same way where you think if Hera walked away from Olympus, the whole place would fall apart. And he manages to bag the goddess of love as his wife through getting his mother in a pickle and then being the only one who can get her out of it. Clever. She's also mother of Hebe, goddess of youth, who, bless her, doesn't do much, but to me represents the sweet-natured, loving woman Hera could have been if she'd married someone a bit more low-maintenance. All her repressed rage against her husband is passed on to her meathead, beefcake son, caveman god, Ares, god of war. More of him later. So Hera has conflicting energies going on. On the one hand, let women be wicked. Let women be power hungry. Let women be as they are. This is what she can symbolise when we look beyond patriarchy. In a way... Without Hera as antagonist, we wouldn't get Hercules being motivated to go on his labours as one example. 
her wrath literally gets a lot of big myths moving. Heroes getting fired up to go out and be heroic, changing the world for better or worse. She seems to despise the heroes as much as her husband's lovers. She is not for women. She's not empathetic. Yet she has the nerve to go up against the man who can obliterate her with a thunderbolt in a second. If she used her power to help women, how different might the landscape of Greek mythology look? In the key to Gill's Great Goddesses, she has a modern-day hero heading up a charity for women who have suffered domestic abuse. She has Hera saying, Who says change is an impossible thing after a certain age, when all of life is nothing but the act of changing to grow? Who would she be in a modern context? Interesting to speculate on who she could be in the classical world without the constraints of the historic nagging wife archetype. It seems like Zeus needs for his lovers to be forbidden, for his liaisons to be dangerous, for them to mean anything. He needs Hera as the thorn in his side, the constraint on his otherwise boundless appetite. You could say in a symbolic sense, Hera is the mind, Zeus is the groin, that age-old conflict we all understand. It's a more nuanced Hera who narrates Claire North's awesome novel Ithaca. She has a sequel to that coming out soon, I believe. Looking forward to that. In the story I'm writing that I've alluded to about my favourite goddess, still not telling you which one, and Dionysus, obviously, I had to go back to my stereotypical characterization of Hera and just give her a brief moment of vulnerability. A rare insight into a woman who doesn't know who she is if she can't wield power over others. Hera might enjoy her power, but to me, it's at the detriment of her liking herself, as much as a goddess can be self-aware enough for self-loathing. Paris dares to incur her wrath and he refuses her gift of power. Next up, a goddess who I think has no such deep-seated self-loathing or angry love-hate passion towards her significant other because this one goes it alone. Athena, goddess of wisdom and warcraft, although what wisdom there is in war, I don't know but certainly the ancient Greeks loved a bit of war. Athena has an unusual birth, hacking her way out of Zeus's head after he swallowed her mother Metis. Here's another poem from Sarah L. Dixon about Athena's birth. Chew your food. If you shrink your enemy and swallow them, chew each tiny morsel six times. This action will aid digestion and reduce the chance of the enemy repeating on you when you thought you were safe. Alternatively, do not eat your enemies. Their daughters will thunder inside you when they're born. You will need an axe to the skull to free armour-clad Athena. Surely one wifely meal is not worth that. Athena offers Paris wisdom. The wisdom to see into men's souls and master them. The power of the mind shatters the mightiest spear, she says in Stephen Fry's awesome book, Troy. 
It's a wise gift to give. It's a shame Paris doesn't see the wisdom in it. This is the crux of what Athena represents. The wiser decision than charging in all guns blazing or getting all emotional about everything. She's all about handicraft, warcraft, statecraft. She's very crafty in more ways than one. She's a walk away from the drama, see the bigger picture kind of girl. She's got an owl and a big fancy helmet. She loves a bit of weaving. Don't dare her to a weaving contest. She'll mess you up if your tapestry's prettier than hers. Check out Nina McLaughlin's version of Arachne in Wake Siren. Athena's not beyond jealousy, but she's not as consistent with it. She generally dispenses good stuff. She invented the olive tree. I mean, where would we all be without olive oil? I dread to think. When she kills her dear friend in a bit of a sparring gone too far, she puts her name in front of hers forevermore because of her remorse. Palace Athena. You could read into that that in her virgin goddess status, maybe she preferred women and Pallas was her lover, dot, dot, dot. Athena advises many otherwise hot-headed men to step back and assess the situation, including her dear old dad. Seems to be the only woman that he actually listens to. She loves Odysseus a little too much for a virgin goddess, if you ask me. She even had an accidental son. Hephaestus splooges over her one day. Gaia, being Gaia, does what she does best and grows a baby out of it. And Athena decides to adopt him as her own and he grows up to be a wise king of Athens, her favoured city, named after her. This is Athena's jam. If she likes you, admires your tenacity, she fights your corner. However, if you piss her off, you're done for. Though it is not always justified. We've talked about her cruel treatment of Medusa in Medusa's episode, her indifference to Penelope in favour of her philandering husband. And it's these incidences of petty jealousies, of feeling slighted, disrespected, that make an otherwise awesome goddess a bit problematic. She's very much a goddess for the ancient Greek man. She's one of the boys. She'll fight on the battlefield with you after counselling you in the best way to win the war in your mind first. She's as cool and collected and detached as Hera is passionate. She's probably the only reason Zeus and Hera don't burn Olympus down to the ground. Something admirable Athena does in various myths is dispense justice. She's the judge for what I think is the first ever trial recorded in literature. At the end of the Oresteia, she comes down and says, Enough killing him because he killed her and so and so. The cycle stops now. She maintains balance. She's an astute politician. She can be as forthright as she can be devious. She literally breathed life into humans after Prometheus made us out of clay. Thanks, eh, for that. We would have been a bit stuffed without breath. She also taught Prometheus a bunch of essential life skills that he passed on to mortals. And she completely got away with that, whereas he got his liver picked out every day. Good for you, Athena. 
I wonder if the gods and the heroes would have treated her with the same respect and reverence if she wasn't a virgin goddess and a bit more like our last goddess. Because of course, Paris, a pretty boy farmer with no great lust for power and no need of wisdom, says, no thanks Athena, no thanks Hera, I just want to get my end away really. Cue Aphrodite, goddess of love. She's beautiful, she's deadly, she's in charge no matter what the rest of Olympus thinks. She really is, for me, the antidote to the toxic masculinity of the Pantheon. The fact that she was born out of the semen of Uranus and sea foam after he'd been castrated by his own son and had his bits thrown into the sea is proof that from fucked up father-son horror, love and unity can arise. What I love about Aphrodite is where the other goddesses are staunch, adamant virgins. Though at the time, virgin didn't necessarily mean not sexually active. It could just mean not married. Interesting to ponder if Athena and Artemis had secret lovers on the side where goddesses like in Hera's case are unhappily married or in Demeter's case had enough of being assaulted. Thank you very much. Leave me alone. Aphrodite is all about love without constraint. She's shamelessly sensual. She's unafraid to pursue her desires, to take gratification, to experience pleasure, to fire love up in others. She's the goddess who feels most like a sexually liberated woman in the modern world and is technically depending on which origin myth you go with, I think, older than the rest of the pantheon. And she really does have them all by the proverbial balls. She had lovers amongst the gods and mortals alike. Zeus tried it on with her once, but she wasn't having any of it. She had affairs with Poseidon, Hermes. She loved the mortal Adonis, who she kept in a box when he was young. She didn't always make consensual overtures, shall we say? She could be a bit of a scheming, vengeful psycho. She also loved Anchises, father of Aeneas, another big important hero from the Trojan War who goes around being a bit of a dick to women, who she defended on the battlefield in Troy. She's a fighter as well as a lover. She was married and tricked into that marriage to Hephaestus, which she was not happy about because he was ugly and personality-wise the opposite of her great immortal love, Ares, which sparks the typical beautiful woman married to an ailing, unappealing man and thus lusting after the young buck set up the stuff of many stories. But Aphrodite is a happy adulteress. She doesn't set much store by marriage. She has it off with Ares and they get caught in a rather funny moment in the Iliad where Hephaestus captures them in a golden net and all the gods perv over them. In the key to Gil's great goddesses, she has a modern day Aphrodite finally realising she does love her husband. Because unlike the other fickle gods and fragile mortals, he remains constant. She was not sure why she had come down to visit him this time. 
So many gods and goddesses vied for her attention, yet all she could think of was her husband, which confounded her. A smile dawned on her lips. It was you, wasn't it? It was always you. Why didn't you tell me? His smile was rueful and soft all at once. You never asked. That's a nice twist for them, I think. But back to the classical myth, Aphrodite, having no great respect for marriage, offers Paris the most beautiful woman in the world as his wife. The fact that she's already married, not a problem for Aphrodite. Helen of Sparta. Of course, Paris gives her the apple and Aphrodite is not remotely surprised because for better or worse, all is fair and love and war. And if there is going to be a war, well, at least it was a war in the name of love, though that in no way makes it any better for the mortals involved. More about the women of Troy further down the line. It's an explosive relationship between the goddess of love and the god of war, one that makes no sense yet somehow works. How much does she curb Ares's hot anger with her smouldering, comforting, sensual love? Here is a beautiful poem from Ashley Posnikov. Ashley is located in the lush mountains of the Kootenays, I hope I said that right, British Columbia, Canada. Ashley is an aspiring writer and a Greek myth enthusiast and is currently working on a novel series rooted in astrology and Greek mythology, which I'm very excited about because I'm really getting into astrology through Greek myth. I'm a sun in Cancer, moon in Virgo, Libra rising, ascendant ruler Venus, for any of you astrology fans out there. So we've got that to look forward to and we'll no doubt be reviewing Ashley's work on the show. When it's around, for now, here's a poem. Love and War Amongst the Gods We were insatiably lured, cast into the flames, to sear upon the glowing embers of love, piercing through the web of woven gold and shame-dusted cheeks, our intertwined bodies crackled with a scorching blaze, a radiant and undeniable heat. Ceaseless before the taunting chortles of immortals, indignant and proud were the crafters of our trap, too full and boastful in their righteous folly, too proud to comprehend the all-consuming desire in which we internally writhed, locked between interwoven limbs, skin aching in the wake of a lover's wanton touch. Rivulets of our carnal pleasures dripping down flawless forms, shapely bodies of luminous iridescence and equal, the purest act shared between lovers' souls. Ours was not simply one in conniving triumph, nor granted by the king of all gods. Ours was created in hushed togetherness, with silent footsteps down torchlit halls. Unsheathed forms, scatterings of armour and linen, compiling into a beautiful mess along marble tiles. A love of no bounds, no restraints, ushering forth a family of unbreakable chains. Chains crafted of more than metal struck upon anvils of labour, 
Ties crafted in the furnaces of something deeper, somewhere molten, a churning womb of desire. For he is me, and I am his, opposites colliding in a harmonious bliss. Together we burn, smelling of swirled emotions upon ashen wings, leaving a wake of our lust upon the wind, unapologetically sunk into the lungs of all those that follow. Lovely imagery in that poem. Quite saucy as well. Oof. So yes, Aphrodite's power is the greatest power of all. Love. And I think the world could do with more Aphrodite energy. More honouring of. Taking responsibility for our true desire celebrating it without shame. How might things have panned out then and how might they be now if her powers weren't weaponized and distorted? How might her world have been without patriarchy? One big rose-petaled orgy, probably. Wouldn't that be nice? So, there we have the big three and how their personalities shaped the myths. Three very different women and it's not like if you took the best of each of them and put them together you could have the perfect woman, whatever that means. It's that their flaws and their strengths make them nuanced, contradictory, complicated and timeless. It seems like whoever Paris chose there would have been consequences But the main thing is that the judgment of Paris gets a whole new theme of Greek myth moving. The epic war and its aftermath. And this links in quite nicely with a book trilogy on theme, the Golden Apple Trilogy by Emily Housen, which brings together Briseis and Chryseis from the Trojan War, Atalanta and Admeti, I think you say, who is someone I hadn't heard of previously, and Hippolyta, over three different books, with a golden apple at the core of the story, pardon the pun, and the reason why these divine apples were loosed into the world. It links in quite nicely with everything we've been talking about, so enjoy those. So, without further ado, let's meet Nine Muses, whose original musical woven about the women of the Odyssey, including the three we've just explored, is coming to this year's Edinburgh Fringe. And hello to Molly and Jess from Nine Muses Theatre Company. These guys have got a great show coming to the Edinburgh Fringe. But first off, let's find out all about Nine Muses. Hi, Lorna. Thanks for having us. So my name is Jessa. I am the founder of Nine Muses Theatre Company. It is a brand new theatre company. I am from Boston, so it was founded here in Boston this year. On top of founding Nine Muses, I have also written this original musical that we'll talk about. Miss Molly is the director in residence at Nine Muses. She is the director of our inaugural production, and she is from California. Nine Muses is an exciting company, I will say, in my opinion, because we are all about the amplification of new voices in the theater space. So uh, 
if new artists are coming forward, they have a beautiful idea for a story and they want it developed, but they don't know how to start. I want to be there. We want to be there to support them. We are learning as well. Both of us, I would say Molly and myself are very hardworking. We are very ambitious and we are smart ladies. So we are up for any challenge. And our first production is Woven, the musical that is going to the Fringe this August. And it is the perfect piece, I would say, to kick off Nine Muses. It is women-led. It is a story of identity outside of the male gaze. And it is about the power and beauty of female friendship, which I think can be sorely overlooked in stories and in real life. Absolutely. And I'm really intrigued to find out about, yeah, the inspiration behind the show, because it seems like there's a definite Greek myth theme coming through. So as the creator, I was firstly inspired by the Odyssey. That is the main inspiration of the story. I first read the Odyssey in maybe sixth grade, and I loved the story. I've always been drawn to mythology and mysticism. But as time went on and I matured and I thought about that story, I realized that a lot, if not all, of the female characters are very 2D. They're very surface level. And we see them as the pretty wife or the mistress or the goddess that only wants to help and has no life happening inside of herself. When I thought about what the female perspective would be that excited me. And that is the inspiration for Woven. Cool. So the women of the Odyssey get their chance to tell their story through the medium of song. Obviously, I can't include all of the characters. So we only focused on seven. We have Penelope, Athena, Helen, Circe, Aphrodite, Hera, and Calypso. Those are our seven ladies. Seven very powerful ladies. I hope at some point I get to come and see. I can't come to the Fringe this year, but hopefully this is just the beginning of Woven. Um, Why do you think there's been such an increase in women reclaiming Greek myths over the years through like literature, theatre? What's that all about for you? Something that I heard your last guest talk about, Rosie, was she used this quote that comes to mind for me a lot of the time these days, history is told by the victors. And a lot of time the victors are cishet wealthy men in terms of, you know, the way that the world played out. So I think that a lot of the stories that we have recently had the ability to hear are a product of distribution of wealth and power in a way that's away from the victors that historically have told the stories of our history, of our culture that weave, if I may, the fabric of our being. And I think something that is fascinating and horrifying that you get to see when people who haven't necessarily won the wars and the battles get to tell their story is there's a lot of nefarious stuff that comes out. And I think coupled with this wild fascination that our culture now has for true crime, I think there's this insurgence or resurgence of needing to tell these stories and know actually what happened because we don't necessarily trust the books. And the idea of not trusting the books is the first 
step that you have to take to educate yourself and drop all your biases and drop your privilege and realize, wow, I have no idea what's going on in the world. Why don't I ask someone who has a different perspective than me? And so I think it's a beautiful thing that all of a sudden we're asking women, we're asking so many different beautiful communities to speak up. I think also something that's really exciting about the Greek myths is that there's no real like stamped version that's correct. All of the myths have discrepancies and in some there's virgin birth and some there's somebody else who's the mother. So I think there's a lot of space for creativity and a lot of space for what if, which breeds a kind of feeling of excitement, at least in me of ooh, what story do we want to tell since there's so many different threads that we can pick from. And I think as well, the idea that Jess and I were just talking about this yesterday, that For a lot of women, the first way that we identify our sexuality is in relation to men. For a lot of women, the first time that you come in contact with the fact that you're a woman is because a man's told you you're a woman. Whether that be like, oh, do you have a little boyfriend at four years old? Or, you know, the sexualization when you're way too young for it. Or, oh, these are the things that you should be doing as a woman. So I think decades and decades and centuries of that has led up to this kind of beautiful electric energy that now that we have the means to take the power back we're going to you can't stop us (laughs) i love that whole thing about like what if that wonderful opportunity greek myths give you to like fill the gap with that in mind i'd just like to get from both of you like your favorite book in this genre or um like theater show if you've seen other theater shows well i've read a lot of madeline miller And when I first read her version of Circe's story, that I think reignited my dormant passion about Greek mythology. I loved that she wrote the women, primarily Circe, it is her story, um, as a three-dimensional person, which is just true. Everyone alive today is a three-dimensional person. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that. We have our preconceptions and we have our boxes in our heads and we like to fit people neatly in those boxes. And it makes it easier for us to digest the world, but it's just not accurate. So like Molly said, with these Greek myths, you could you could tell a very one-sided, easy, superficial story, or you could dig a little deeper and consider what's happening underneath, right? Is Penelope just patiently waiting for years and years and years for her husband? Or is she pulling her hair out and thinking about murdering him when he comes home, if he's still alive? I will also say, when it comes to musicals, as you said, Lorna, this is very much on trend. I recently saw Hades Town, which is a retelling of Eurydice and Orpheus and Persephone. And I thought it was absolutely beautiful. Cried my eyes out. I, I loved that it was stylized with New Orleans cakewalk jazz. It was very dark. But when I saw that, again, that just doubly affirmed for me that I need to write this show that I can write this show and that it's going to be just as good as Hades Town because I know that there's a space for it and people love these stories for one reason or another. 
Wonderful. Yeah, I loved Cersei. Cersei's going to get her own episode further down the line and I'm going to be bigging up Madden Miller. And Hades Town is actually coming to Birmingham soon. So I'm all over that. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. What about you, Molly? What's your favourite? I love Cersei. I think that was the first one I read in the genre. And I think it was a girlfriend who said to me like, oh my God, you have to read this. Cause I'm, I'm really boring. I I'm like, I'm reading David Copperfield. Like I'm, I'm a boring old lady. So I don't read very many uh, like modern books that everybody's talking about, but I picked it up and immediately fell completely in love with the character. Just like Jess said, like she's so three-dimensional. She's got so much stuff going on in her head and I just thought it was brilliant. I feel like it could easily be a film. I also really liked A Thousand Ships, which I know you've talked about, Natalie mm-hmm. Haynes. And honestly, book-wise, I like to say that feminist literature doesn't have to just be for women by women. I like to open it up for like non-binary folk and the, you know, LGBTQ plus community. So I'm gonna add the song of Achilles in there because holy cow did that book have a hold on me and there's just not a version of Achilles life where he's not in love with Patroclus in my version now like whatever it is like they're in love because I just thought it was so beautiful I also really really liked I saw a couple years ago now at the National Theatre Paradise it's an all-female cast set kind of modernly in a looks almost post-apocalyptic i'll have to read the blurb i don't know if i'm i'm was this k tempest yes i saw that i i didn't know about it and then i saw it and i literally went to see it the same day i chugged up to london to go and see it i'm like i've got to see this it was amazing it's incredible it's what and i think the thing that was so startling about it that i really really brought brought forward into my directing and my teaching is the idea that you don't have to play a man if you're a woman to make it look legitimate, you just have to play the given circumstances that a man would have acquired throughout his years, his confidence, his stature, his warrior vibe, all of that stuff. And I thought it was so beautifully done. And all of the characters seemed to be completely non-binary and wonderful and exciting and horrifying. I just, um, it's on National Theatre at Home. Everybody watch it. It's absolutely insane. I remember seeing Kay Tempest uh, perform their poetry like years and years ago because I'm a poet as well and just to see how they've you know just stormed it um yeah it's amazing to see you know what they've achieved and you know done for Greek myth resurgence wonderful so tell us where we can see Woven in Edinburgh where and when it is going to be at the Greenside at Infirmary Street. That is the the housing venue. And then the theater is the Forest Theater. And we are running from August 14th through to the 26th. And there is no show on the 20th. So the first week, August 14th to the 19th, we are showing at 145. And the show runs roughly 50, 55 minutes. And then in the following week, from August 21st to the 26th, we are showing at 2.55. Well, there you go. And I shall put the link in the in the show notes as well. So if you are at Edinburgh Fringe this August and you love Greek myths, go see Woven. Thank you so much for coming on the show and good luck with Woven. Thank you, Jess and Molly. 
Thank you so much for having us. It's been really nice to talk with you and we hope to see you at the Fringe. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, send me any pre-recorded poetry or drama on theme, please email me at nornaemehan at gmail.com. Please share with anyone who might be interested and I'll be back next month where we will be meeting the sorceresses of Greek mythology. It's going to be magical.